This is an ABC podcast. Things are really kicking off in Sri Lanka right now. Both the President and Prime Minister have been forced to quit. Protesters have taken over the Presidential Palace and they're not going anywhere. Hey, it's Dave Marchese with you for Hack, and soon we'll take you to Sri Lanka to hear why this country's in crisis. We've also got a monkeypox update. A doctor's got some pretty important advice for you. But first, a nightclub's dead. Hack. I used to go clubbing like twice a week when I was like 18, 19, 20. And now it's like once a week or yeah, every two weeks. On Triple J. Look, there's no denying the nightclub scene in Australia has changed a lot. And the numbers don't lie. More than a quarter of Australian nightclubs have closed in recent years. And it's not just here. Around the world, research has shown young people are turning away from the clubs. Everyone's still having a good time, though. House parties are going off. But a whole bunch of different reasons are being blamed for the decline of clubs. Is it dating apps? Is it COVID culture? I want to know what you reckon. Do you still like to hit the sticky dance floors or are you sick of dealing with the club? Is it too much effort? Let me know. 0439757555. At Hack, we wanted to do a bit of a dive on this. So we sent a few of our reporters out over the weekend. And first, here's AJ Williams. Yeah. So that there is what it was like clubbing back in the day. And apparently the vibes were off tap when it comes to having a night on the town with your mates. And I remember um, one night when we had Flume and What's So Not play. Check it out. It was shoulder to shoulder. Everyone was crammed into this tiny black dark room. And it was so hot and sweaty that I remember feeling the sweat, the condensed sweat from the crowd dripping from the ceiling onto my face. Mmm, must be nice. <laughs> but, like, it was just like, it, you know, and you would rock up on, like, a Tuesday night and there would definitely be a club open. There'd be heaps of people there. You could bump into someone that you knew. you go out on a Sunday night and, like, things wouldn't close early and there'd be a line for everything and there'd be so many people that you never felt unsafe because there were always people around. And, yeah, research from around the world is showing that young people are turning away from clubbing in droves. And nightclubs are shutting down everywhere. In Australia, in the last few years, the number of clubs has fallen from 482 to just 355. And for those that are still open, they're making way less money than before. My colleague Edwina went and asked some young people about why the nightclub scene isn't what it used to be and how it could be better. What is the thing that is stopping you from going out, the major thing? What we want is more permanent kind of incentives to go. Um, financial accessibility as well. I mean, in the CBD, it's all high-end restaurants, you know, fine dining, fancy bars. Young people like us can't afford to do that every night. We can't afford to spend $20 on a cocktail and, you know, get drunk. Like, that's just simply not going to work, which sucks. Um, and the last thing was safety for women. It's just not... It's not comfortable. It doesn't feel safe. Too much regulation, too much security, bad vibes, bad atmosphere. I just want good vibes, everyone having a good fun time, uh, everything open all night, not all this closing at 2 o'clock, go home, sterile. Experts reckon dancing on the sticky dance floor all weekend long is a thing of the past. Mainly driven by the growing trend of young people wanting to live a healthier life, digital entertainment options the closure of venues and COVID. And honestly, good for young people. I've never 
ever been happier. But I do not care. I have never, ever been happier. Plus, the old trend of going out to pick up has become a whole lot easier. Why are venues so shit and samey? Oh, because they're all just RSLs. Why is there nothing but RSLs out west? Why are we just going to the same places, same and the same again? Where's the small bars? Where's the rock climbing gyms? Where's everything else? Cheaper public transport is, I think, would help boost the nightlife. I know a lot of friends that have gone to, like, gone overseas, and they say that the night actually starts at midnight. Yeah, different music genres now and house parties are becoming more of a thing because it's cheaper, the seckies aren't staunching you, and you can just vibe with your close friends. So. I sent my colleague Rachel to a random house party. Well, for research. Okay, I'm at a house party with Sally. Sally, do you still go clubbing? Uh, no, I don't, but I never really did, to be honest. But you go to house parties? Um, I do, um, just to see friends and um, catch up a bit, yes. Is there less pressure to drink at house parties? Oh, absolutely. Taylor, do you still go clubbing? Yes. Were you, were you always a clubber? Yes. How often do you go clubbing? Now, maybe once every two weeks. So this study found young people don't go clubbing as much as they used to. Do you think that stacks up? Yes, yeah, definitely. I used to go clubbing like twice a week when I was like 18, 19, 20. And now it's like once a week or yeah, every two weeks, maybe not even once a week. Is that an age thing or a COVID thing? Probably both. Do you go clubbing? No, I don't. Why not? Don't really see the point. But you go to house parties? Oh, it's my house, so. Fair. Hack. On Triple J. AJ Williams with that story. He's devastated, by the way. AJ wants more nightclubs. Huge thanks as well to our reporters, Edwina Story and Rachel Rasker, putting in the overtime at the house parties there, asking the people what they think. And look, we're getting heaps of messages on this one. We've got Emma in Melbourne saying, too hard to get into clubs. Queues are too long. Lots of shut too. Somebody else says, nightclubs are definitely a dying breed. Me and my mates all hate them now. Much prefer a nice bar with a decent fire. Someone says expensive drinks, entry and rude security. And another person, Matt, says nightclubs are a cesspit of gross behaviour. People aren't being shy with their critique of nightclubs. It's all coming out. I want to get into this a little bit more. And Mick Gibbs with me. He's from the Nighttime Industries Association. G'day, Mick. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me, Dave. Your group's all about trying to get people out and about, enjoy the nightlife, but this critique is pretty severe at times. You're hearing some pretty big concerns from young people about nightclubs. Is it true? Is clubbing dying in Australia? Look, I wouldn't say clubbing's dying, but I'd say the days of the super club are well and truly over. I think there are a few different considerations here to have as well. You know, uh, Young people really want a curated experience now when they go out. So when you think about how everything else interacts with the youth audience, it's highly targeted, highly curated, and really spoke to the individual. So it's kind of unsurprising then that when it comes to their night out experiences, they really want that curated experience that suits them and their crew. The industry's obviously been under a huge amount of stress over the past couple of years with pandemic pressures. We saw heaps of venues closing. How are club owners feeling, those that are still around? You're probably out there talking to people. What's the vibe there? Yeah, absolutely. Look, a lot of organisations, a lot of clubs are kind of rethinking their business model. They're looking at how they can diversify their business models and how they can engage people in different ways. And a really good example of that is what organisational clubs are doing over in uh, overseas and looking at that experience and what they can do here. So a big part of that is this idea of immersive experiences. So looking at a more curated offering where 
you're bringing in the, the dance floor, the artists, digital media, and creating this really kind of alternate reality experience for the audience. It's not just sitting in one giant room. It's more curated. There's smaller spaces for people to go and have a drink and still experience a great night out without being in one giant space. Interesting. So you reckon that we could see some sort of a revival of clubs. They'll just look a bit different to what they have in the past. Exactly right. You know, it's kind of unrealistic to expect that what worked a decade ago or you know, even longer is necessarily going to work for a new audience. The audiences change and behaviours change and what people want changes. And a lot of the, the clubs and nightclubs in uh, New South Wales in particular are changing to meet that as well. They're looking at how they can adapt their business model. And particularly, you know, after the COVID experience, they're looking at new ways for them to generate revenue, new ways to keep their businesses going and new ways to engage with their community. And really, a good example is Club 77 in Sydney. Now, after the COVID lockdowns, the team really reconsidered what their offering is and how they can look at other revenue streams and whether that means, you know, looking to invent their liquor license, create bottled cocktails in-house to sell both in venue and online looking at what sort of events are offering. It's really reconsidering how they best meet the needs of their target audience. And that is what we're seeing happen overseas as well. These clubs, you know, changing to create this much more curated, more niche experience. That's exactly right. You know, there's a good example of um, House of Yes in Brooklyn. You know, they've they've kind of grown and evolved and been a part of the community and constantly kind of evolved to what the community wants. So they're adding in really exciting experiences for their audience and making sure that the audience become part of that by bringing them in through, you know, getting people to dress up in costumes, getting people to have these really elaborate performances that's a far more inclusive and unique experience. We're hearing from a lot of people, lots of people talking about Sydney's nightlife, obviously. I was speaking to Ebony Waidu earlier. She was saying, yeah, she's definitely noticed a change since, um, you know, pre-COVID days to now in terms of how much, you know, she gets booked for clubs and those kinds of events. We've got another person here that says lockdowns in Queensland killed it for clubs here, especially in the Valley. So that's Kenny in Brisbane talking about the situation in Queensland as well. We're hearing a whole bunch of issues, people talking about safety issues, party precincts becoming boring. Are the clubs strategizing here? Are they really talking to young people and wanting to get their feedback and, and act on that? Absolutely. You know, the NTIA, so the Nighttime Industries Association, just formed a uh, under-30s youth advisory committee where we're bringing in people across Sydney, young people across Sydney, and getting their voice and getting that, what do they want when they have a night, night out? What are they looking for? And that insight and that information is going back to our members so that they can better reflect what their audience wants. It's not just, as I was saying, you know, it's not just let's continue doing what we've done forever and ignore the voice of those that we're trying to bring in, but let's listen to them and let's understand what, what do they particularly want when they have a night out. And as you pointed on, Dave, it's, you know, safety is such a paramount part of that and really having that kind of greater focus and greater awareness of safety and making sure that people feel that a security presence is there to, I guess, provide that sort of duty of care to protect them rather than to be an intimidating force. That's a really important consideration now for nightclubs. And I reckon there's a whole lot of interest in keeping, you know, the scene active because the decline of clubs would affect other areas of nightlife too, right? Absolutely. You know, the nightlife's an entire ecosystem. It's not just one element. It's not just clubs or restaurants or theatres or live music venues. It's all intertwined and making sure that that entire nighttime economy and that entire ecosystem is robust and performing well is, is critical to not just having a good night out, but to having successful jobs, to having career pathways for young people 
to having a reason for you know to try and attract skilled skilled workforce to Australia to Sydney. You know, having a really robust nighttime economy is a critical part of that. All right, Mick Gibb from the Nighttime Industries Association. Appreciate you jumping on hack and filling us in. Thanks so much, Dave. Have a good night. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, dress codes piss me off about nightclubs. Don't see that shit at places like music festivals. Um, Somebody else says, how common vaping is inside now has made me hate clubbing. That's an interesting point. And another person, Sam in Coffs Harbour, is blaming the rise of the Bushdoof for the decline of clubs. Who knows? Inside Sri Lanka's presidential palace, protesters continue to roam. On Triple J. You might have seen some pretty wild scenes out of Sri Lanka over the weekend. Heaps of mainly young people living it up in a beautiful mansion. They're bombing in the swimming pool. They're making themselves at home in a luxury bedroom, hitting the gym, playing the piano. Looks pretty nice. But hey, this isn't a resort. It's Sri Lanka's presidential palace. It's been stormed by furious protesters who forced the country's president to resign. The prime minister had already quit and his house was set on fire. Sri Lanka is in crisis. In a minute, we're going to get some analysis from someone you know really well. But first, Claudia Long has this update. Protesters in the capital, Colombo, have stormed the official residence of President Gotabaya Rajapaksa. The private home of the Prime Minister was set alight, even though he also offered his resignation. Hundreds of people broke into the presidential palace after more than 100,000 protesters took to the streets. In Sri Lanka, protesters are storming the house of their now former president. And all that yelling that you can hear right now, that's them splashing around in the pool. and working out in the formerly private gym. But how did we get here? This hasn't just happened overnight. It's been building up for a while off the back of a whole bunch of shortages and economic pressures. Sri Lanka's Prime Minister says his country is now bankrupt and that there's You can hear more about it in a sec, but to give you an idea of just how bad things have been getting, we're not just talking about the kind of cost of living crisis that a lot of countries are facing right now. The economy has completely collapsed and local currency has lost 80% of its value, while the price of food has gone up by nearly 60%. People are being forced to queue for hours and hours just to get basics like fuel, like this guy who was in line at a petrol station. It's not only fuel, people don't have enough to eat. How long will it last? How long do we have to waste our time in queues? And without enough fuel, the country has been plunged into ongoing blackouts as well. And there have been severe shortages of essential medical supplies. Sri Lankans are desperate, with many queuing for days to get passports in a bid to try and find stability and safety elsewhere. We're not from around here. We travelled to this area three days ago. We've been queuing for three days and we still haven't handed over our passport documents. I've been here for two days. It cost me thousands of rupees to buy food and thousands more for my passport. This alone explains why I want to go abroad. Hack on Triple Jack. Claudia Long there with that update. And I want to dig into this a bit more because there's so much going on and it seems like this crisis is developing day after day. So I've got an expert with me. You know her very well, former host of Hack. She's the ABC's South Asia correspondent. Avani Dice, welcome back to Hack. 
Hey, Dave, how are you? Yeah, I'm well, Av. I'm really, like so many other people, pretty shocked seeing these scenes that are coming out of Sri Lanka. I mean, for you, it's not only part of the area that you now cover as a foreign correspondent, but your family's Sri Lankan, so you've spent a lot of time there growing up. When you're looking at these scenes coming out of Colombo of protesters in the president's pool, sleeping in his bed, how does it sit with you, someone who knows the country so well? Dave, it's actually so wild to be seeing what's happening. Certainly in my lifetime, I've never seen this level of people power and this kind of toppling of people in power in Sri Lanka. You know, as I've grown up, Sri Lanka's dealt with a really awful civil war. The country bounced back really amazingly. Then there were these horrible terror attacks in 2019. It bounced back again. It was one of the most developed nations in South Asia. And then over COVID, after years of government and economic mismanagement and all these world problems that we're seeing because of the Ukraine war, things like the global food shortages, fuel issues, it's all created this perfect storm. And the economic situation over the last six months or so in Sri Lanka has been horrible. People haven't been able to access food. They're waiting hours for fuel. They're going hours a day without power. And then on the weekend, this crazy situation after months of daily protests, people fed up with their situation. Thousands managed to get into the president, Gautabaya Rajapaksa's house. And Dave, just to give you an indication of this, this is this beautiful colonial building in the middle of the capital city, Colombo. It actually used to be called the King's House in the colonial era when the British ruled Sri Lanka. Yeah, as you said, those those videos that are going around on social media, it's just crazy. People swimming in his amazing crystal blue pool, people taking selfies on his four-poster bed. You could see his undies hung up, people going through his stuff in his bathroom. And I've been speaking to protesters who've been in his house, and they're telling me these extraordinary things. They're saying... We saw the luxury that he's been living in. We went through his fridge where it's fully stocked with food and every day we can't even afford to have two meals a day. So the contrast of how he's living, but the fact that they've taken over just shows how much lack of control this current government in Sri Lanka has. So are they still in the president's house, the protesters? Are they still there? Yeah, so they've effectively set up shop. They're living there and it's just showing how much power they've got in this situation. They've actually painted on his window saying open to the public so anyone can walk in. Security have basically given up. I actually spoke to one of his security guards and he says he was actually meant to go to work on Saturday, the day when the protesters stormed in, but he couldn't get to work because there's a fuel shortage. So the buses didn't come. So that just shows that even the president's own staff are dealing with this awful economic situation that they can't even do their job. So that gives you a bit of an indication as to how protesters were able to get in. But they're telling me that they're not going to leave his house until the president stands down. Now, the president's just completely disappeared since the weekend. No one's seen or heard of him. There has been some images of him running and getting onto a Navy ship near Colombo. Uh, that's not verified, but it does make sense because his brother, the prime minister, when he resigned in May after these protests, the Navy kind of protected him and hid him. But the president has said that he's going to resign on Wednesday. But some people are saying, is that actually legit? Why is he taking so long? Why has he said Wednesday? Why didn't he do it straight away? So people are saying, is he trying to figure out a way to still hold on to power? But at this point, that's what he said he'll do. He said he will stand down on Wednesday.
Can you explain a little bit what some of the issues are um, with these people who've been in power, the president and the prime minister? What are protesters saying? So this family, Dave, they're known as the Rajapaksa family and they've been in political power for decades. And most recently, there have been four brothers who've been in these really powerful positions, mainly the Prime Minister, Mahinda Rajapaksa. He was forced to stand down in May. And his brother, the president, the most powerful person in the country, Gautabaya Rajapaksa, he's the one that's now facing all this pressure. And what people have been saying is that this family has been using public money, taxpayer money over the years for their own personal gain, that they've invested all this money into projects that haven't seen a good investment that's benefited the country. So the hard work of normal people has gone to waste. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese and I'm speaking with the ABC's South Asia correspondent and your former host here on Hack, Avani Dias, about the crisis in Sri Lanka, which has really escalated over the weekend. Av, you've spent quite a bit of time in Sri Lanka this year and I know that you've been speaking with young people over there over the past few months. And I remember we spoke to you earlier in the year and you said that people were comparing this to the Arab Spring that happened, you know, a decade ago. We saw protests spread from country to country in the region. Is that something that could happen in South Asia? Well, this is the thing. So Sri Lanka is obviously the worst situation when it comes to this economic crisis, but already we're seeing similar situations in Pakistan nearby, in Nepal. They're all facing similar economic problems. A lot of of it is to do with this issue around the Ukraine war, the lack of food that's being transported and all these issues that a lot of countries are dealing with, but it's also economic issues that Australia is facing. You know, we've just had a federal election in Australia and cost of living was the big thing. Of course, Australia's not facing things to the same level that these South Asian countries are dealing with, but experts are telling me this is a bit of a cautionary tale that people should look to Sri Lanka. And I interviewed the Prime Minister of Sri Lanka, who's now agreed to resign um, within a few weeks, but he has said that countries like Australia should look to Sri Lanka and think about populist politics, politicians who are trying to divide societies and make money and and really think about proper economic management because it really affects day-to-day people if it gets out of control in this way. I wonder how experts reckon this is going to play out in the next few months. Like who's in charge of the country now? What's going to happen? That's the crazy thing, Dave. It's obviously a big win for the protesters. At the moment, they're celebrating. They're in this luxury presidential palace. But that's the question. Experts are telling me this could be a crossroads. Either Sri Lanka could descend into complete anarchy without a proper government taking over, or this could be an opportunity where Sri Lanka has this enormous systemic change that actually positively benefits people. So now what the sort of plan is, is that all these opposition parties, they're saying they're going to come together, they're going to form a government, they'll have an interim person who'll stand in as president, and then they're going to elect their own person as president in coming weeks. But what people are saying is, People need to trust this new government. They've got a major economic disaster on their hands. And what really needs to happen is they need to get a bailout. They need billions of dollars given to them tax-free just as a loan so they can actually get back on their feet and actually bring normal life back to Sri Lanka. That's a massive story. Uh, We know you'll keep us updated. Avani Dias, great to hear from you. And thanks for updating us and, and keeping us up to speed with what's going on. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. 
And if you do want to know about what's going on, there's more information in a really big story that Av's written. There's heaps of crazy pics showing the scale of these protests. You can find it on the ABC News website and you can follow Av on Twitter, on Instagram. She's updating there as well. Um, we've got some thoughts coming through. Ryan in Durag Country says, even if they replace the leaders, it obviously won't fix the issues. Will the people be happy to wait while any new leadership works on the problems? It'll probably take years. So I'm not worried that this is going to become like COVID. But still, having said that, it is not good. On hack. When the news broke of monkeypox earlier this year, we all thought, what? We cannot deal with another hectic virus. Medical experts said they were on it. They were quick to reassure the public that this is different to COVID. It's not a global health emergency. But what is the latest here? Because there are a couple of dozen cases in Australia... Now health officials are worried it might be spreading locally. A couple of the cases in New South Wales are thought to have been caught here and not overseas. Let's get up to speed. Dr Brad Mackay's got the facts and he's with us now. G'day, Dr Brad. Thanks for jumping on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks for talking about monkeypox. Yeah, I want to, you know, bring people up to speed because they would have heard about this a few weeks, months ago and probably not too much more about it. Should we be worried about what's happening? Sure. So it's really evolving at the moment. So um, from about May, that's when we saw um, cases of monkeypox sort of starting to spread around the UK. And then we've had a number of cases around the US and it spread to uh, like more than 70 countries. And we've had more than 9,000 cases around the globe so far. So uh, that's sort of exponential rise of cases. Uh, And so, yeah, it's not as as infectious as COVID-19, but it's still um, very infectious and can cause horrible uh, disease and horrible illness for lots of people. Okay, and it can be deadly as well. What's the what's the go there? Yeah, so the, the fatality rate for this particular clade of, of monkeypox is about 1%, so less uh, likely to be less than that with modern medicine. Um, but, yeah, the vast majority of people will have mild symptoms, um, but they can be sick for about uh, two to four weeks with horrible uh, blisters and pustules all over their body. Um, it's a very similar virus to smallpox. Right. And so, yeah, this can create a, a lot of um, ongoing long-term scars for, for lots of people too. So how is it spread? What do we know? Yeah, so at the moment we're we're suspecting that the vast majority of cases are from um, from skin to skin contact, so intimate contact, sexual contact. Um, but there's also sort of some suggestion that it can be from respiratory droplets as well. So from saliva, if you're standing close to somebody. Um, and what we're finding at the moment is that it seems to be mainly in the population of men who have sex with men. So um, so this is something that uh, is sort of reminiscent from HIV coming through uh, many, many years ago. Uh, and so we're not wanting to ignore this. Certainly it won't just affect uh, gay men or men who have sex with men. It can affect anybody. Um, but yeah, it's just really that that's the group that's being uh, targeted or uh, attacked by the virus at this point of time. Yeah, and I imagine it's a bit of a balancing act. Like you don't want to be freaking people out in a huge fear campaign, but also you need people to be on the lookout for this, especially if they might come into contact with it. What symptoms should people be watching out for? 
Yeah, so the symptoms are quite varied. Um, it's typically like a very high fevers for a few days and uh, a few days after having those high fevers, um, that's when the rash starts to develop. So some people just have a few spots um, which become like pussy lumps um, and other people will have like 25 um, lumps is sort of like an average, um, but some people could be covered over their, their entire body with these pustules, which is pretty, pretty horrible. And they're really painful as well. Um, and it's also associated, one of the features of it is that it's associated with large and painful lymph nodes as well. So large lumps underneath the skin. And if people are worried that they've got symptoms, like should they just show up to the sexual health clinic? What should they do? Um, no, bring a head because uh, yeah. it can be very infectious. So if we're doing swabs of the pustules, that's the main way of actually getting a diagnosis. Um, but we as health professionals need to be doing it in full PPE. So, um, yeah, certainly call ahead to the clinic. Um, or And there are some hotlines, some monkeypox hotlines as well uh, with, with um, health departments around the country um, where you can alert them. And, um, yeah, I've had a few patients who have had um, people turning up in big suits um, covered from head to toe and, um, yeah, being very cautious about their, their swabbing. Yeah, I bet. And just quickly, Dr. Brad, we've only got 30 seconds left, but there's an isolation period, right? Like if people might have been exposed, they might have to go into isolation. Yeah, so if you've been exposed, the ice, you can end up getting symptoms even 21 days after the initial exposure. So there is a very long time um, where you've got to be really careful and looking out for, for any spots if you've been uh, in, in contact with somebody with monkeypox. All right, well, it's definitely something for people to keep an eye on, to be informed. Um, Dr. Brad Mackay, really appreciate you coming on Hack and breaking it down. Thanks so much. Hack. On Triple Jack. Big thanks to Dr. Brad McKay for that update. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.